0: Hello and welcome to the Innovation Engine podcast. I'm joined by my friend and colleague, Scott Varho, Three Pillars Vice President of Product Development. Today, we're sitting down with someone who you might call a one-man innovation engine, Bob Mesta. You may know Bob as a principal architect of the jobs to be done theory, along with Harvard Business School professor, Clayton Christensen. Bob is the founder, president, and CEO of the Rewired Group, a consulting firm dedicated to helping companies innovate better, cheaper, and faster. And they've done so for over 3,500 different products and services across countless industries. They do this by training teams in how to take their disruptive ideas and quickly turn them into products consumers want. Additionally, Rewired practices demand side innovation, which focuses on creating and expanding markets for new products to empower companies to grow. We're speaking with Bob about the challenges he faces in helping new companies rethink about how they do business and his new book, Demand Side Sales. So Bob, first of all, many of our listeners might not fully understand what it means to help clients bring their ideas to market or even to help them rethink how they do business. Can you walk us this process and the reasons why some people get it so right and some people miss the mark.
1: Yeah, it's great. It's a great question. And what I what I, um, I I've uh, got a, a new book coming out. And I talk about young Bob and I talk about enlightened Bob. And part of this is as young Bob, we're taught. Like first of all, I think we've been uh, almost. Uh, I feel like I was lied to when I went to school. It was like build it and they will come. Right. And so everybody's so worried about the process of innovation and how what are the steps that we take and what are all the things that we do? And what I found is is that part of this is to realize, like, where we need to innovate is actually only where customers or the people we're targeting struggle. And so part of this is actually helping people reorient from talking about features and benefits of their technology or of their of their, of their product to literally what are the struggling moments that people have around in their life and then how do they pull your product into their life. And so part of this is actually flipping the lens from uh, pushing a product out to people to understanding where is their pull, where is their demand. And so we have this notion of what we call the supply side and the demand side where we have supply side language where we can talk all our words, but the demand side is really how do people find us? What happens? Nothing is random. Nobody buys anything randomly. So what happens in their life to help them see that and pull something in? And what is the dominoes that have to fall? And so that fundamental premise is where we kind of help people reorient themselves from. And they'll say that they're customer focused or customer oriented, but they're usually customer oriented through their product, not actually truly customer focused about people's lives. And so that's where you start to actually pull people, almost pull them back out of, you know, get a way a better perspective as opposed to kind of using the product as the lens to see the world.
0: And and so do you find that most people and most companies who engage with you are receptive to some of those thoughts or receptive to your guidance, or do you get pushback? And if you do get pushback, do you like the pushback because then maybe that allows you to open up a, a different kind of dialogue with them?
1: No yep um, so there's always there's always resistance of some sort right And so part of it is to realize like I have uh, four uh, very uh, significant mentors for mine and one of the things of myself uh, for me and what one of the things they talked about was this whole aspect of staying humble. You don't know what you don't know right And so part of it is to realize like I take that from that perspective of people who have resistance they either don't know what they don't know or I don't know what I don't know and they're right. And so part of this is it's all about being able to learn. And so I think of innovation as a platform for learning and those who can learn fast enough, literally win the game. So, so that's pretty much what I do. The other, the other aspect to me on the, the notion there is that I, I actually wait for people to struggle. So if somebody's got a plan and they're already in the middle of executing the plan and they think they know exactly what to do, you know, it's like, it's almost like that's pulling teeth. There's almost hard, very hard to help. But when they kind of hit the wall or they kind of like the, the road washed out, right? That's where we actually start to engage. And so in a lot of cases, I've learned not to push my services on people, but wait for people to be ready for my services. And so that's the that's that real aspect. So when people kind of struggle, that's the bigger, that's the real opportunity to jump in and help. It's Clay would always say, so one of my mentors is Clay Christensen, he always say that the teacher appears when the student is ready to learn. <laughs> And so that's that's really what I, I I kind of wait for, because I'll say early in my career, I, I end up being kind of a bull in a china shop and trying to, bull, you know, run over people in terms of trying to get things done. And I realize it just doesn't work. Yeah, they have to be ready to receive the message.
2: It's kind of you dogfooding your own philosophy about exactly. product development. Um, exactly. which is just
1: and, and, and we, we, we drink our own Kool-Aid here. I mean, at some point, like I, I'm right now in the middle of, uh, building, uh, four new products and we've done a lot of work to understand where's the struggling moment, exactly what to causes people like for the, for example, of this book I wrote, uh, demand side sales. It's like, think of it going to business school. And the reality is, is like, at some point you learn all these different tools and methods and, and approaches and whatever, but they don't teach you sales. Like I've been, I've been an entrepreneur seven times over. And I've worked on over 3,500 products. But the reality is, is like sales is actually the hardest thing of all. And yet they're like, "Mm, yeah, we're not going to teach that at business school. What? (laughs) Those are the kinds of things where we found a void. And that's why, to be honest, I could have written a whole bunch of other things earlier. But I wrote that one first because I think that's the biggest void and where the struggling moment is for most entrepreneurs, most inside innovators. Most people try to do think they have to learn how to sell their ideas and get help understand the progress that they, that the people they're serving actually are trying to make progress so you can fit into their lives, whether it's the executives, whether it's the customer, whether it's suppliers, all of them have to think about progress.
0: And I really appreciate that you mentioned struggling moments because so often um, and I think I may even switch to the struggling moments because I talk about pain points and the yeah. best moment in a conversation is to hear someone's pain or that struggling moment that you just yeah. mentioned, because once you can identify what the struggle is, then you can help them to the next, to the next phase. And your, your point about until they understand, until they get to that themselves, it's really difficult to bring forward um, new ideas or to help guide them where you think, or, you know, they might be headed yeah. or need yeah. to head, but until they understand their own struggling moment, uh, it's, 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 It can be challenging to be
1: aware. One of the reasons why I turned it away from a pain point, because one is that a lot of times people will say, where do you have pain? And we'll be like, I don't have any pain. There's nothing like that. But I would say, where do you struggle? And they go, oh God, I struggle in these four places. Like, it's almost like things I haven't figured out or things that are there. And the other part is, Struggling moments are about the fact that it's sets of struggling moments that cause people to change. It's not just one. And so a lot of time we say, where's your pain point? Or we think about a pain as like it, that pain has to be there. And, and part of it is, it is it's a it's a it's almost a system of how people decide to change. And if you view it as a system, you realize there's multiple pain points, there's multiple sequences of the pain points. And if they have have them in a different sequence, they actually might do completely different things. Yeah, absolutely.
2: For our listeners, can you can you make um, your uh, process a little more um, uh, tangible for them? Is, are there aspects of how you go about um, flipping yeah. that lens, as you said earlier, that uh, that'll help them connect with uh, your approach on this?
1: So there's there's three key frameworks that I use, and so a lot of times, um, uh, so one of the things I did when I was very early in my career, I had the the, the, the just the joy to be able to work in Japan, and, and they talked about process and process somehow got translated I'll say incorrectly or in a different manner to the U.S. or to the to the West. Process for them was the fact is is here are the boundaries by which I can then innovate inside. So I'm responsible for the process. And we've taken the notion of process and saying that process is a set of best practices that everybody should do. And the moment we get best practices we stop innovating. And so they have something called continuous improvement and we have best practices. And so I use what I call a set of frameworks to actually help people continually improve the way they look at the customer. The first one is this supply side, demand side notion is that there is this world of what I call the supply side where uh, where I say I grew up, right? You know, build it and they will come, you know, where you have a system that builds products and that product has features and benefits and, and, um, um, you know, uh, experiences and attributes. And ultimately, how do we build specifications for the product? And then we figure out, well, who wants to buy this product, right? But when you actually flip over to the demand side, I think of a wall that's third, uh, 10 feet thick and 100 feet high. And when you flip over to the demand side and kind of realize, like, how do people really decide, for example, today's the day I need a new mattress, right? Well, if I'm building mattresses, I can say, well, you know, uh, uh, you know hotels need mattresses and colleges need mattresses and furniture stores need mattresses. But all of these different people, they they end up seeing it at a very macro level. They don't see the micro reasons of what causes you to say, today's the day I need a new mattress. And so part of this is to look for where consumption really happens. Hmm. The the other framework then is basically around the timeline. Like what happens and what you start to realize is that they actually have a process for figuring out how to buy a new mattress, a new CRM system, anything. And there's, there's six phases to it. One is there's a first thought. If there's no first thought, they actually cannot see any of your advertising. They can't really, they can't, you know, kind of really do anything. But that first thought creates, as Clay would say, uh, uh, questions create spaces in the brain for solutions to fall into. And so in a lot of cases, this is marketing asking a question or showing something that basically that they can't do today that they want to do tomorrow kind of thing. And it's about creating that space. And then there's what we call passive looking. This is where they didn't see it before, but now that they have a space, they actually start to see, oh, yeah, they're doing that and somebody else is doing this. And they start to collect to, to understand the problem space, but then also to understand the solution space. And then they move to what we call active looking. And this is where they're very explicit about kind of I want this, I want that. But it's very, I call it orthogonal or um, uh, magic wand thinking. Like they want everything. They, they don't realize there's trade-offs that they have to make. So like, I want it to do this and I want it to do that. And I, want, I want it to be this price and I want it to be this way. And it's like, it's all magic. And then they move into what we call deciding. And deciding is actually about making trade-offs. And most people can't frame trade-offs very well. And so a lot of times they'll want something and then they can't make the trade-off. So they never decide to do anything and they don't make any progress. And so deciding is this notion of actually helping them give them options so they can eliminate, so they can actually make, make those uh, trade-offs explicit. And then there's the first thought or the first uh, uh, the first use, where first use is kind of like, all right, because all everything prior to that is almost in the mind. And then they actually get to buy the mattress and sleep on it, or they buy the CRM and they start to load data into it. But they don't do any of that prior to this. And so part of this is, what are they hoping for? when they actually buy this new CRM system. And so we can actually translate kind of like what they're hoping for, to what are the real things we actually have to go do? And then there's ongoing use. And so we teach people basically how to see that journey that they go on. And that then we talk about how do you actually structure the sales process by the way in which they want to buy, as opposed to the way in which we want to sell. And so that that's the premise of demand-side sales is flipping the lens so you can actually help your customers make progress as opposed to just selling your product. And then there's a third framework which I'll just touch but it's about this notion of that nothing is random, everything is caused and that we understand the causal mechanisms behind what make people like stop using this mattress and start using this that mattress or stop using this CRM and, and buy a new CRM. And so it's there's a there's what we call pushes of the situation which is like the pain points. What's going on in their life that say they're ha- I got to do something different. If if there's no push, then we'll actually do nothing, right? Because at some point, it's like we're ha- we're actually creatures of habit, and if it's good enough, we don't we have a lot of other things to work on, and so there has to be some push of the situation. The second though is that there has to be a pull, a desired outcome of what they want. The interesting part is most people think of them as symmetrical right? Like, like there's symmetry between, well, if they have this problem, they want this answer. And it's a lot of times like, no, I'm very frustrated with this. And what I want to do is save time. <laughs> and you start to realize that they use very different languages between what I call the pain side and, and the, the outcome side. And then there's two forces that we call as kind of a, the frictional points that basically hold people back from making progress. The anxiety of the new, and then the the habit of the present. And so we're trying to actually understand how those four forces play together to enable people to make change. And so that's how we, we, we really dive into helping people look at it from the, the consumer or customer side and understand why people are buying something and how people are using things.
2: What I love about um, everything you just, you just laid out is it, it seems to me it's, it's the, it is the third way between the we'll build it and they will come, or we're just going to build a product that users ask for or that, or that the consumers ask for, which, you know, I can tell you oh, firsthand that consumers don't know what the product should look like. They, they don't understand what the technology or whatever can do, um, but they know they have the, a problem that needs, is in need of a solution. And uh, yeah. but I'm curious what your thoughts are about going from um, working with consumers and talking to them uh, and, and then how you turn those into
1: insights. It feels like these frameworks are designed to do that. Um, yes. that accurate? Yeah, Yeah. So, so the interesting part here is that um, also maybe a little controversial, here, but most people think of an insight as something that's new. You've never seen before. And they're digging for like the needle in the haystack of the new insight. Nobody saw. But the way we define an insight is an actual causal mechanism. When this happens and that happens and they do that, that's an insight. And so how do we actually see how the sets of insights come together? And so we're actually capturing the forces. We're capturing the the, the trade-offs they're willing to make. We're capturing kind of the, the what we call the hiring criteria and the firing criteria. And a mm-hmm. lot of times people don't know what they want, but they can tell you what they don't want. <laughs> like I'll say, oh, mm-hmm. make it easier for me. Well, what does easy mean? I'm like, just make it easy. You'll say, well, what's hard? Oh, hard is, you know, it takes too long. It's too many steps. Like they can. And so a lot of times people can tell you what they don't want, which then starts to build the space for what they do want, right? Mm-hmm. The other thing is that in, um, in Japan, one of the things they also taught me was this notion of technology agnostic requirements. And I'm like, what in the world is that? And they're like, I want to know what the customer wants, irrelevant of the product I give them. So I might be able to solve the problem 15 ways, but what's the real thing they're looking for? They're not looking for a product. They're looking for an outcome. And so how do we actually see the, the technology agnostic requirements? And so think of it this way is we're trying to find the hole that we're trying to fill. And ultimately I need the boundaries of that hole. And once it's there, it's it's it actually becomes so easy to innovate because now I don't actually have I understand trade like I can't build the perfect thing, but I can actually build a what I call a kick-ass half versus a half-ass hole, right? Where you have to keep putting everything <laughs> in it. And and so the aspect here is like, how do I actually define the hole that people are really looking to fill before I go and innovate? So nine times out of 10, people are always trying to innovate from the technological side or from the supply side of the world. And what I realized is there's an overabundance of technological knowledge and, and product out there. And the problem is not a demand side or a supply side problem. It's a demand side problem that people don't know they have the struggling moment or they don't actually know how to get rid of the old thing to create the new thing. And so that's where you start to realize, like, I, I look at the numbers that I've been able to kind of work on. And part of it is, is because I'm actually bounding. I don't, have, I don't believe in the blue sky kind of notion of strategy. I believe about framing the right constraints, figuring out where there's struggling moments. And then it becomes almost really easy to innovate because <laughs> you're mm-hmm. inside the boundaries. You know, as you're talking, it's, it's, it's really
2: striking to me in my own... Uh, so I've been at product companies most of my career. Um, Three Pillar is actually a, a weird deviation from that into, into the services world um, for me. But it is amazing to me how many times I've had to say to people inside uh, product companies that have been mostly in B2B companies, I was like, we need to understand why buyers buy and why users use. And they're not the same people. They don't no. have the same agendas. They don't have the same struggles, if I, if I use your word. And, and the obviousness of this to me, but the, the level of like, what? Wait, what are you talking about? they they're, yeah. Their customers are monoliths. And I was like, right. that's the most incredible misconception. How can you it's be good. here as, a, yeah. as an executive and not understand that,
1: that uh, they have different agendas? So imagine, imagine being able to teach the salespeople why why buyers buy, why users are looking for new things, and then understanding and explaining to them, here's the, here's the conflicts they have amongst themselves. And so a salesperson comes in and doesn't just speak features and benefits. They ask them questions like, why are you doing this now? What else are you looking for? What, you know, They have a whole set of questions, but at the same time, they're going to actually highlight like, well, you want this and they want that. And so think of Salesforce. Salesforce wants all the data. They want to be able to see how the sales... Processes running. They want to know the effectiveness of it all. But the salespeople just want to sell, and the marketing people just want to market. And if you make it too hard for them to do it, then they're not. It doesn't matter the fact that you want the data if they're not going to use it, or it literally cuts my productivity of sales in half. Well, I'm not going to use it. And so part of this is to realize there's trade-offs that you have to make along the way to to make this actually a very successful thing. And you have to realize like sometimes you have to satisfy one and then the other, or the other and then the then the one. And so you, this is where understanding kind of how they work together and again think of them as two different systems that have two completely different you know sets of requirements and outcomes then you can can really understand yeah no oh my gosh that resonates
2: with me so much because we tend to learn from from successes and from failures i'm I'm wondering if there's any notable failures that that have shaped some of some of your lessons and some of your thinking on this
1: yeah so so one of the other things so like i've uh, how do i say Like if I can't find a struggling moment where people want to make progress and they're willing, they're not just uh, complaining about it or bitching about it. Right. But they're willing to actually try to make efforts to make changes like that's one thing is like at some point there's a lot of times people will complain about stuff, but they're just not willing to do anything about it. And there's a big difference between what we would call a pain point, which is like, man, this is inconvenient to like, no, I got to do something about it. So to me, it's that threshold. I think the other thing to realize is that when they have no choice, there is no job. It's now just a requirement. So, for example, if you think of auto insurance versus uh, health insurance, health insurance, you actually don't get to choose. You pick it. Right. And so a lot of times we know more about our auto insurance than our health insurance because we have to shop for auto insurance, And so when there's no choice, so I always say jobs doesn't work in a communistic world. (laughs) because When there's no choice, then then there's no hiring and firing criteria because I have to do it. And there's the illusion of choice, which is gold, silver and bronze in terms of your health care provider. But the reality is, is like, but that's it. And you don't actually it's really about how much money you're willing to pay and how sick do you think you're going to be. And it's those three criteria that help you pick. But you have no idea what's going to happen. But in car insurance, like I got a 16 year old, I drive this far, I literally use the car for like you, you, you have way more knowledge and understanding when there's a free market. So this is one of those things where I've been able to say, like, if it's, if it's, you know, something where there's no choice, pretty much doesn't work. And if there's not struggling moments, I won't innovate there either. Makes a lot of sense. And to be honest, I've learned them all through really hard ways, right? Like, like you've tried to crack the knot, like there's gotta be a way like, and you just realize like. They complain, but they're just not, they, they just don't have that. They, they can't let go. The friction is so high that they don't know how, like think of it as, I don't know how to migrate the data from this CRM to that CRM. So like as much as I love that CRM and I know our old one sucks, I don't know how to do it and I can't move. And so they, they can just complain about the old CRM, but then nobody can do anything about it because they don't know how to manage the data. Or they can't imagine that that it would be doable, right? That's right. You know. That's right. My, my favorite is like banks. Like nobody, everybody, if you talk about bank you go like, oh my God, I hate it. oh, just, it's like, yeah, but if I switch, right, it's a lot of work to switch. By the way, it's not a lot of work to switch anymore. And the second <laughs> is the fact is, it's like, at some point, they just know that everybody's going to be worse or, or the same or worse. And so it's like, I'm just going to live with it. And so to me, there's a huge opportunity to really reinvent banking right now, because at some point, everybody's so complacent with how bad it is. <laughs>
0: mm. Yeah, And when you remove those barriers between, whether it's a digital product or a physical product, right? I love how you put that. If you remove those barriers, the companies that can do that, that see forward and kind of sit between, as you mentioned, kind of the doers and the buyers. And and when you can remove those barriers, when you can feel what that friction point is and remove the barriers, you're golden. There's no excuse why that that person who's having a struggling moment, or the company that's having the struggling moments, there's now no reason why they can't make a switch.
1: So, one of the things I did, I always say that the, what I call the anxiety force is, the, is where all the gold is, right? So, I, I have, one of the things I did is I built houses here in Detroit for a um, uh, little over four years and I built a thousand homes. And one of the things I realized is that I would build for uh, first time home buyers, divorced family with kids, and then downsizers like your parents think of. And the whole aspect is, is that one of the things that I realized was a huge friction point for them is how in the world am I going to pack up all this stuff from 3,000 square feet and move into 1,500 square feet? I can't even clean out a closet. So what did I do is, is, and you had people literally sign up and they literally put a deposit down and they come back three weeks later and go like, we just can't do it. We can't figure out how to get the basement emptied. Like, it's going to take us years to do this. We, we're going to have to cancel the contract. So what I did is I actually... Um, I, I, I built a, a storage place, a long-term storage place across the street from the development. I gave them moving and two years of storage and a place to sort all their crap in the, you know, in the clubhouse when you come to visit. A 22% increase in sales. It wasn't about a feature, right? And, and the people, all my competitors were asking, you know, well, we'll give you free granite. We'll give you stainless steel pilots. And I'm literally coming back and saying, like, I'll help you. You know, moving is included and storage as well as a way to sort the, the stuff through so you can move now. Because most people on downsizing are doing it because there's a health problem or they want to travel more. They want to do all the, and they're so stuck that they don't know what to do. And by simply adding moving, it made everything work for them.
2: That's an amazing insight and an amazing example of what you're talking about. That's, that's awesome
1: well, so here's here's just one other example in the space is that I realized that uh, if you think about the timeline, the first thought, turns out the first thought of moving seriously happens between Thanksgiving and New Year's, which is like they're setting up for the holidays, they're thinking about next year, I turned off all my advertising, right? And what I realized is that the other thing is that the, the thing that made them go from a passive active, passive looking to active looking was one, one of them or one of their friends either got sick or passed away. And they'd have this very awkward conversation of like, oh my gosh, you know, our friend just had, you know, their, their husband passed and now they have to, move. I don't want to do that. We need to go. So I moved my advertising from the, from the real estate section to the obituaries. And I literally said like, time to move, need some help. 39% increase in traffic, 70% reduction in my advertising costs because I knew the path that they were headed on. And I wasn't talking about specific homes and solutions and all the different designs I had. I basically just said, look, want to move? Struggling to figure out how to make it all work? Give us a call. We'll see if we can help. That's it. It's <laughs>
2: incredible.
1: Right? So these are the kinds of things where if you like, so what happens is we end up spending way more money on things that aren't necessarily features people want. And we end up realizing, like, I realized I was in the building business, but over time I realized I was more in the moving business than the building business. So I actually would actually buy people's houses and fix them up and sell them to other people who couldn't buy my houses. So we'd have people, first-time homebuyers who had small small houses or condos, we'd actually buy their condo from them, they move into ours, and then we'd actually fix theirs up, and then we split the profits with them. Right, and so it's that notion of how do I help people move is really the the the, the progress I'm helping people do. They're not buying a house.
2: I have, I have a follow-up question if I if I may. Um, you know, I, I'm sitting here thinking about how I mean this resonates with me so much, and, and so much of my career, I've been a product leader, um, and yeah. so. You know, I don't care who says that the uh, product manager is the CEO of their product. I've never been the CEO of anything. Um, uh, (laughs) (laughs) I am the manager of tension. (laughs) uh, Description of the role that I have played. And so, like, you know, all of this resonates with me. But like to someone who's in a position like mine, who's trying to navigate an organization and and get the organization to fall in love with the problem uh, and meet the consumer where they are. Rather yeah. than in, you know the brilliance of their idea, their solution. What are some ways in which someone like that can navigate the organization or or, or start to yeah. model some of that changing? So changing? one
1: of the things. question. So one of the things we do is we we actually have people be part of the interview process because what happens is is there's a it's almost like the line of telephone where everybody says it's easy. And then you'll say, oh, I know what easy means and, and marketing will know what easy is and somebody else will know what easy is. And, and then you have actually, you all use the same word. I call it a dictionary problem. We all have the same word, but we use different, have different meanings for it. And so what happens is, is when we do these interviews, we, we don't interview people and talk about the product. We talk about what was going on in their business that said, today's the day I need to do something new and to realize what's the set of things that had to be true for them to actually go do something and then what were they hoping for and what you start to realize there is there's language and people will use the word healthy or i want to be you know i want to be uh, more efficient and you like and you start to realize that that there's so many different definitions that you have to learn how to unpack what that means and so when we do an interview around just about anything we take at least an hour to get people's stories so think of it as extracting their story of why they bought what they bought and what happened and then after that interview we actually then do another hour of arguing about what the hell we heard. And so what it, what it does, though, is it forces everybody to have the same language and for us to unpack the words to mean easy is about easy onboarding or easy is about getting somebody else on speed, up to speed faster, or easy is about migration of data Because there's now 27 different dimensions of easy and oh, by the way, as a product person, I can't do all of them. So what five do I do? And what five do I do well? Where the other ones, I know they're going to complain, but it's not a big deal. Right? And so those are the things that you have to realize that there's always going to be trade-offs. And so to me, the biggest misnomer is that most people feel like they can build the ideal customer experience with the ideal product. And by the way, it never is on price and it never comes in on time. And it actually never hits the ideal customer because they don't exist. <laughs> Sorry. This is but, too much of my lived experience. Um. <laughs> but, that, but that's one of those things where, like they'll say, we need to. care. I'm like, no. So the other joy of being able to work in Japan was they taught me about variation. And it's like there's things where you, there's they called control factors, which are things that I can control that will in, impact the product. But then there are noise factors, which might be preferences. So how do I actually figure out what are the control factors and noise factors of the system I'm responsible for And that by having the engineers, so nobody's taught the engineers how to listen to a customer interview, by the way, right? And so they're listening for, for the product and they may want people to dive into the product. And the reality is like, no, you have to think about the context by which your product, the noise factors that your product has to work within. Oh, and you start to realize like, I'm trying to give you the requirements beyond the requirements before we have the requirements. And then through pattern recognition, we can start to see where the important uh, requirements become really hard. And what's interesting is most people feel like there's 27 or 50, you know, kind of requirements. And what I would say is it really comes down to like five or six and there are not a lot of them. And the, there are a lot of other things that people want, but they don't really care about. But if you hit those five or six, then they kill it.
0: Yeah. You
2: know, Oh my gosh, I, I'm such a fan of a, of the concept of essentialism and yes. bringing products down, no matter how complex they are. At its core, is is some sort of a value promise, and you you always want to stay true and re, and return to that value promise and evaluate every feature, every design, and everything around that that value promise. Um, and right. and you have to accept that's going to resonate with a with a cohort and and right. not with everybody.
1: Um, well, and there will always be somebody who complains. And like, like, like so for example, when I do seminars, there's, they always ask like, what's one thing that could be better? There's always going to be somebody who says, oh, I wish it was this or I wish it was that. So I literally run every seminar at 62 degrees because my constant complaint, which I've designed for is it's too cold. <laughs> <laughs> All they can come up You're with. Reloaded the
2: complaint. That's
1: amazing. <laughs> and so I know I don't have to do anything about it. And so it says next time, like bring a, so in my reviews, it'll say like, it's always usually really cold, bring a sweater.
0: Perfect. <laughs> Engineered the complaint. I love it. Right. With, with jobs to be done, you know, you 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 have a theory, you have a philosophy on jobs to be done, and you pull that through into demand side sales. Can you? We, we've talked about it a, a bit today, but can you can you just talk a little bit more about why you decided to write demand side sales yeah. now? So and and if you want to touch on anything that you're working on in the future, but why why demand side sales now?
1: So there's two things. One is, is this, so I'm dyslexic. Uh, I was, uh, I think I was born a, an engineer out of, out of the womb. Uh, I was breaking things by the time I was two. I was fixing the things by the time I was five. You know, I was building things by the time I was 10. I'm 56, so I've been doing this a long time. And, and, and so part of this is to realize that um, uh, in that process, I, got, I ended up having three close head brain injuries, which very much inhibited my ability to read and write, and so I had to learn in a very different way. And so part of this is to, is to, is, is that Clay Christensen uh, in 2010, basically we, he was, uh, he had uh, 2009, he had a, a stroke, cancer, uh, and uh, I want to say a heart attack all in the same, like very short period of time. And one of the things he I went to see him and he basically said like, I, I can't pass right now because you uh, know we need to turn jobs into a theory. I'm like, okay. So that's where the theory came from. So I would be, I'm the practitioner, Clay's the theorist. But out of it, what we were able to do, and he wrote a book called Competing Against Luck. And uh, most of the client, a lot of the clients in that book are uh, clients of mine through the years because I've been doing this since the like, early 90s. And, but though it, it, just as we were building that out, one of the things that kept coming up is I had four hours a quarter for 27 years with Clay with no agenda. And we just start talking about things. And one of the things that came up is I said, why are there no sales professors? Like there's marketing professors and finance. Like, why is there no sales professors? And it turns out that that um, in the end, marketing or sales was seen as a trade. It's like a combination of product knowledge and psychology. And, you know, and it was it was very. But having done seven or six startups by that point, I was really to the point of like, but sales is the hardest thing of anything and like. And when you try to go get training in it, it's giving you techniques and, you know, all these different things. But it's like, where's the theory behind sales? And so one of the goals was, how do I actually help the the academic community start to include sales into its um, curriculum? And so we took jobs theory and I flipped it into the sales realm. And I've been doing this for, for a long time, but I never thought about it. But the struggling moment was so large that I basically said, look, Let me write a book. Um, And to be honest, again, I'm a dyslexic, right? So how does a dyslexic write a book? You find a company called Scribe Media, who has a process that extracts all the right information from me. So all I did was talk to them for two hours, uh, uh, two hours at a time, 10 blocks. And within uh, almost 120 days, we had a book, right? And so... So I'm already doing I got another book called Learning to Build. I got another book after that about uh, uh, employees and basically uh, HR in terms of what causes people to switch companies and how do you may help employees make progress. But back to the sales one. The sales one really is then about teaching people about understanding what, how do people buy, what progress are they trying to make, and start from that perspective and reframe your sales process based on how people want to buy. And just by doing that and using the frameworks of the timeline and the forces and and the supply side, demand side, you're able to actually change the way in which you actually interact. So I have a company I work with called Autobooks. And one of the things we did is they they always complained about the demo. The demo was like so hard because they'd have a whole process set up in the demo. And then after the demo, they try to close. And I kept saying like, well, where is the prospect in their timeline of buying? And they would look at me like, well, I don't know. Like, well, let's ask them. Well, you can't ask them. I'm like, yes, you can. And so you ask them, like, oh, I'm up here. And so when you when they're doing a demo in passive looking, they want to learn. They want to hear stories. When they're doing a demo and, and deciding, they want to know trade-offs. And so what we end up doing is going from one demo to three demos. And we literally have the time to close, and we double sales. And so it's this notion of being able to actually understand how do people buy and knowing where... The, You know, uh, Jennifer, to your point, knowing to where they're at and being able to help them make progress So it's not about getting them to close. It's getting them from passive looking to active looking and then from active looking to deciding. But here's what happens is sometimes they go to active looking and they go back to passive looking because it's way bigger than they thought it was. Mm -hmm. And so a funnel works like this, where it just basically funnels things down and there's no there's only one place, which is out. But the fact is, is in a timeline where it's straight, people can go backwards because of context because of new outcomes because of new requirements. And so that's really what this has done is it helped flip the lens from trying to look at the world through our product to look at look at customers through the product to looking at people's worlds and say, how does our product fit into their life?
0: And you do such a nice job in in the book and in this conversation of discussing kind of that looping back and that there is this process. It's not a straight linear process from someone making you know having an issue, figuring out that moment and then Pulling them through to making a decision and and
1: yeah. And so in, 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 the, in the so the cool part is I've been able to coach Shaw a whole bunch of different sales teams these days and one of them will always say like oh my god that you know I have this problem where you know customers ghost me they just constantly are ghosting me like I, I we have great interaction then we do do a demo or we do and then they just go away and I'm like like so you think they're actively avoiding you and they're like yes that like they won't answer my call they won't okay let's get somebody in. So we actually, and, and, and what happens is like four months later, they just literally show up and then they buy. And they're like, they ghosted me and then they buy. I don't know how to predict with it. And it's like, so then we go and interview somebody and say, what happened? It's like, oh, when you showed us the demo, we realized we didn't have the security compliance that we needed to do this and this and this. So we had to go off and do those things. And there was no reason to tell you because we didn't want to know that we had that problem. But at the same time, the fact is, is, at some point we weren't ready. And so I didn't Call you back because I wasn't going to call you back till I had something to say because we didn't know. It. And once we saw that, I called you back and we bought. So I basically sales. You keep thinking it's about you. It's not about you ever. It's about them. It's always about them. And if they're ghosting you, you have to actually understand what causes them to ghost you because that's that's really the the underlying thing is maybe they bought somebody else, but most of the time they didn't. They didn't buy anything. The number of We are collecting data around this right now, but it's like right now, I think the number is about 82% of proposals given. There is actually no decision ever made. Crazy number. That's crazy number. number. Think of all the work that's done. Like, holy crap. So that's that's partially the reason why I feel like um, there's one other reason why I wrote the book is that From this paradigm, or from this view, you start to realize there's a lot of people who sell who don't realize they sell. So a nurse or a doctor sell a rehab program to a patient. They they don't do the rehab. The patient has to do it. So they have to actually convince the patient to make progress. And a teacher actually has to help a student make progress. And so it's not about just sending the information. It's about actually helping them understand the progress the student's trying to make. And so you start to realize, like, at some point, there's a lot of people who, you know, I would, I would say non-sales salespeople who actually have to know how to improve their craft, where what they're doing in, in schools is they're trying to improve pedagogy. And my belief is pedagogy is more to the ideal way in which somebody should learn math versus can we understand how the kid thinks and actually build a way in which to help them make progress based on how they see math to get to the outcomes that both you need and they need. So I do... I'm sorry? sorry. Nobody. I was just going to say, when I lived
2: in uh, in Europe, I taught English, and I used the people would come to me and say, "Hey, would you would you teach me English?" And I'm like, "Well, actually, let's be honest, I can't teach you anything. I can guide your learning. I can challenge you. I can correct um, you know mistakes. I can do that, but the learning is yours. Um, all I can do is is provide some raw material. Um, and, and there's a lot of those kinds of contexts where it feels like the verb is is just wrong. I'm not actually Able, I can I can facilitate your growth, um, but I, the growth is still yours. You have to take right. the steps. Then you yeah, can apply that to sales.
1: This, I is love where, that. this is where I think, so that where I'm spending some of my time now is I'm actually trying to figure out kind of like, how do we really learn? Like, like my belief is some people have to learn a subject from a macro level to a micro level. Mm-hmm. Some other people have to learn from a mi- mi- uh, micro level to the macro level. Some people have to see it in the past. Some people have to see it in very tangible, but like, what you realize is like I have four kids and one would learn history one way and they learn math a completely different way. And you mm-hmm. start to realize, like, how do I actually start to build a language to talk about the way they learn as opposed to starting to say, how does the brain work? Because I don't believe that just understanding how the brain works is going to tell us how people learn. Mm-hmm. right? And so this is one of those things where I just think that it's like it's I mean, think about it. We haven't actually. Schools have standardized the way we teach and the variation of students that come through. No, no wonder we have such a big dropout and kind of like people not doing what they're, what they're learning, because at some point we're all get the, 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 uh, the variation of learning types is, is expanding and we literally don't know how to actually adjust for it.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: It's a very yeah. interesting
0: problem.
2: One, uh, one, one compliment I wanted to, uh, to impart to you and get your thoughts on. Um, one of the things that strikes me as particularly impactful about your body of work as I look at, at, at all of it is the integration. Like I'm a big fan of uh, Patrick Lencioni's The Advantage, um, this idea of integrated organizations that operate together. And I'm sure you've witnessed as much as I have that it's, it's oftentimes I build the product and I throw it at marketing and I'm like, oh. I don't know, marketing. Um, figure out how to describe it in a way that people will buy it. Create a sales deck, yeah, go, go for it, guys. And and because we're not working from that shared understanding of what is that need we're filling, right. um, we then have to create language to, to go over the product in order well, to make we, it. A how we invent language.
1: So so I, I have a, like having worked on so many projects, right? I always talk about this notion of like the the difference between imagined tasks and and discovered tasks. Hmm. And the fact is is we can imagine like we have a project we're going to do this project, and if it's truly innovative, we actually don't know what we should be doing. Right. We're, we're actually building a plan when we're the stupidest about what to do. And so but then what happens is we have to build a 12 month, 24 month plan with a budget because finance needs to. I call it the church of finance needs some way in which to account for our spending. <laughs> but then what happens is six weeks in, we realize, boy, we, we here's here's something we discovered. Here's some discover test or here's a place we completely missed or, boy, you know, any idea of switching the plan makes us bad managers as opposed to accounting for us being bad guessers. And that the fact is is that what it's forcing is innovation to be less and less innovative because we only innovate on the things we can plan and that has the least amount of what we call discovered tasks. And the other thing is most people only plan for discovered tasks or plan for uh, uh, imagined tasks. So you end up with no time to do the discovered tasks.
2: And I always wondered if if some of this doesn't... I was just talking about that problem um, recently with some some folks in our product management practice here about the the challenge that our stakeholders, our buyers have when they buy services from us. Because a lot of times they're being funded by investors who invested in a business plan where the only thing missing was capital. And Uh and it really accounts for the discovery. Like If you're going to spend that money responsibly... I believe you have to go through a heavy discovery period, um, okay. but that often that that's not that's not the way that's you view it.
1: So this, is, this is where uh, so I do a lot with, uh, you know, uh, tech stars and Y Combinator, and I try to advise them to go find investors who understand the difference between kind of proof of concept and getting you to a certain point and then scaling. And, there's a, there's a, and, and at some point in time, like a very good friend of mine, uh, I've been helping them for almost 10 years. The moment that they got uh, private equity, they went from venture to private equity. They couldn't build anything anymore. They were only allowed to buy. And they're, so, they're all a bunch of builders. They're used to building stuff. So they're like, wait a second, what, what what's going on here? And it's like, because at some point, as long as it sits the plan or the fact is, is that we can buy something that will actually augment the plan, that's fine. But we're not building anything. We can't handle the risk of building. And so that's where you have to realize that building is there and creating something is very different than, than assembling something.
0: That's an hmm. excellent point And one that I think is, 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 I believe, is overlooked so often um, oh, yeah. on both the investor side as well as the business builder side. And excellent point.
1: Yeah. Imagine how many times people go like, oh, we can build that. Oh, yeah, we can build that. And it literally is like they actually have no idea what they're supposed to be building. But but at some point, the notion of of trying to trying to actually go through all the work and they underestimate what it's going to really take. And then all of a sudden, everything falls apart. And so it's one of those things where, you know, before they say, yeah, I can build that. It's like, I know you can build that. But what is really going to take versus what, what you know, what don't you it's the unknown unknowns. Right. That really kill most projects.
0: So Bob, we have a, a, a piece of the conversation that we ask all of our guests, and okay. it's a speed round. Uh, yep. this is off the top of your head. Some really yep. quick questions before we close out our conversation. I'm gonna start. What's your favorite piece of technology?
1: Huh. It's not a popular one, but I think my favorite piece of technology is being from Detroit is the internal combustion engine.
0: Oh. I look at
1: over the last hundred years of all the different things that has been possible and the expansion of growth from both product and, and services and agricultural and everything else, it all comes from the internal combustion engine. And so you start to think about it. we have a device that does 4000 explosions in a, in a minute that takes rotational energy and turns it into moving something. And it allows us to do all the things that we do. And most people, it's, it's become such a basic thing. But I feel like it's, it, it is literally probably the single, like if you take a step back, I know we have a lot of problems around it in terms of the, the consequences of it. But I don't believe we would have expanded and, and had the, 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 the growth of population and all these things over the last, you know, hundred years without that underlying technology. Uh, what
2: is your most used app on your phone, um, excluding any communication apps?
1: Probably Speechify, which is uh, it's a, it's an app that allows me to hear and basically so because of being dyslexic, I can literally read things and give things. And so it's that or Siri, one of the two. Because like though I might text, I always talk the text, I like it. and so I'm almost always using something that goes uh, because it's such a text rich world. That I use something that helps me convert um, the my, my thoughts into words. Nice.
0: What was your first interaction with memory that was related to technology?
1: So, again, you most people have a very strict definition of technology. I think of technology as uh, a, a, an embodying principles, set of principles or products that change something, right? And so... Uh, when I was uh, three years old, I figured out how to climb up on the mantle and get a mantle clock. And the babysitter was there. I remember vividly sitting on the floor and I was taking apart this clock. I had a pair of pliers. I had two, two screwdrivers. She didn't know what I was doing. She thought I was playing with a toy. And I remember just like trying to understand how did this thing work. And then as it was time to go to bed, it was one of those things where I could remember how I took it apart and I could reverse it to put it back together. I missed two parts, but I was so young. I had this uncanny ability to kind of recreate what I had done. And so that is like my first real kind of thing of taking something apart and try Again, I got in lots of trouble because I wasn't supposed to be playing with it. (laughs) (laughs) But but it was like this first memory of like, wow, how does this work? Why does it work this way? And then realizing, Oh, like, I got to put it back together. Okay. And just being able to do that. I think the other one is is um, my idea of fun was going out on big trash days. So I grew up in the 70s. And so a lot of people would throw out the big old console of uh, record player and hi-fi all in one cabinet. And so my mom would uh, allow me to get those. And so I had collections of uh, amplifiers and speakers and kind of different things. And so I built uh, many different kind of... Uh, things out of it but i just remember always figuring out uh what, what was a vacuum tube and what was a transistor and how did they work and shocking myself and having 120 volts running through my veins and like all that kind of stuff that was that was that was very good <laughs> as well but that's those are my two vivid memories <laughs> <Nothing> <laughs> that my children do ever by the way
2: <laughs> oh fantastic for Early people in their career, what's what's a common piece of advice that you tend to tend to give to, to early professionals to help them on their on their journey?
1: So I have a phrase that I use over and over again, and I, I would say uh, context creates value, and mm-hmm. contrast creates meaning. And and what I mean by that is that at some point in time, you know, I always say, do you like steak or do you like hot dogs? And people go like, oh, I like both. I'm like, okay, but think about the last time you had a hot dog. Did you want a steak? Well, no. And last time you had a steak, would a hot dog fitted it? What's the context that makes things valuable? And so can you actually understand that value is not absolute. Value is always in context. The other thing is to realize that most people, they learn by contrast. So they don't learn by seeing one thing. They learn by seeing multiple things. So the example there is I always I always tell people to give people three different proposals three different ways in which to work together or three different ways. And what happens is most people eliminate one of them right out of the bat. So you actually give them one, you know they're going to eliminate. But then when they have the two that are left, they don't compare them to each other. They compare them to the one that's out. And ultimately, they don't pick the one they want. They eliminate the two they don't want.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: And so realize that choice is actually about contrast. Choice is not about yes or no. Choice is about actually coming convincing yourself that you need to do something and so anytime you can't do something bring two other things to the table that basically give you motivation to then figure out how to eliminate what not to do that's fantastic
0: i was just gonna thank you so much for being on the podcast today it's been a real honor scott and i have been wanting to talk to you for a long time um, your new book gave us the opportunity to reach out to you and 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 invite you to be part of the, con- the the podcast and and share some insights with our and I do call them insights insights with our our community of listeners and it's I'll use the word again it's been a true honor thank awesome. you for joining
1: us. so so my I have a next book that's coming it's about the five skills of an innovator right and it's like the five skills that helped me. Basically, it's the things that most people don't talk about. Oh, they'll talk about courage. They'll talk about humbleness. But mine are, one is, is uh, empathetic perspective, being able to see things from many, many different perspectives, being able to have uh, uncovered demand, see, th- see the, the, the struggling moments, if you will. It's causal structures, understanding cause and effect and how to build Prototyping to learn and then managing, identifying and managing trade offs. Like those are the five skills that, when you, if you take the best innovators or the best entrepreneurs you've ever worked with and put them in a corner, you'll find that they have, they don't know how they got the skills, but they all have the skills. And it's like the skills that nobody else is talking about because they all talk about like oh well you know they do this or they you know they're they're lean or they 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 see what they want to see in it and I just literally pulled aside like what can these what can these people do that other people can't and that's that's what this next book is about because if you think about it I'm a, a illiterate dyslexic kid from Detroit who didn't really have much hope to even going to school and my mentors implanted into me those five skills that allowed me to be involved in over 3,500 products and services and do seven startups and do all these different things. And most people will say like, you know, well, you know, how'd you decide to become an entrepreneur? And I'll say like, I didn't decide, I was unemployable, <laughs> right? <laughs> it's like, like, like I couldn't even do the resume, like you get the resume and they give you the, right, here's the application. I couldn't fill out the application. Because in that, and those times, people who were dyslexic weren't seen as I, it was just seen as a, a learning disability, but the fact is, is that nobody wanted to hire somebody who was dyslexic. Where today there's so many ways you can get around it, which is great.
0: So thank you for having me on as well. And, and, and on that there are so many perspectives that those with dyslexia and different ways of looking at the world actually bring to oh, projects yeah. and conversations and leadership and all of these pieces that are incredibly beneficial. And you've described a number of them today.
1: Well, thanks for having me on. I hope I hope to get, come back and talk about the other book because I think that your audience will enjoy that one even more. Because, again, who it's really wants goodness.
0: this stuff, you
1: know? <laughs> yeah, knowing. We can go ahead and put it on the calendar. <laughs> good, good. I appreciate it. Thank you so much.
0: This has been an episode of The Innovation Engine, a podcast from Three Pillar Global. If you have questions, comments, or guest suggestions, email us at info at 3pillarglobal.com.